I, I don't know if you guys caught that. Let them be accursed, right? Anathema in Greek. I think you just kind of have to say it from the beginning with Galatians. Galatians is intense. It just is. Like from the very beginning, Paul seems like he's fuming. There's something that's happened in the background that apparently we're not privy to, and, and Paul is feeling upset, bothered by the whole thing. And you kind of get an idea of what's going on when he starts by saying, he introduces himself as Paul, an apostle, right? But an apostle sent not by a man, not from men, but from Jesus, he says. Now, why would he need to preface this whole letter with something like that unless somebody has been questioning that? Unless someone's questioning his credibility, his legitimacy as an apostle, why would he need to tell us that he wasn't sent by men, he was sent by Jesus? There's something that's happened. Paul is kind of under attack by this group of people in the churches there. The other thing you have to keep in mind is that Galatians is different than these other letters we're used to, right? When Paul writes to Ephesus, right, it's just one city, right? The letter to the Corinthians is just written to one city, to Corinth. But Galatians is different. It's a group of churches in a, a part of, of southern, what we would call Turkey now, and southern Asia Minor called Galatia. So it's a collection of cities and different churches, right? And there were these, these three cities that were really important in all of it, right? You've got Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, right? And in Acts 14, there's this moment where Saul and Barnabas have gone into Lystra. They're proclaiming the gospel. A man's been healed. Incredible things are happening, right? But a group of, of Jewish people who are angry at this new movement of people who are now following Jesus, they come, they find Paul, and they stone him. Now, don't think that they're just terribly violent people. Keep in mind, the law says that a blasphemer has to die. And here is a man who calls himself Jewish saying that Jesus of Nazareth was God. They don't know anything else to do with him, right? They stone Paul with, with good reason in their eyes, right? They drag him out of the city and they leave him there for dead. They think he's dead. Now, obviously, we know the rest of the story. Paul's still writing, so he doesn't die. Eventually, he gets up. The other apostles come to help him, and he walks right back into Lystra. And he continues doing what he started there. Paul has sacrificed, almost given his life to make this message known to these people, right? That's the story. That's the background, right? What we have is not just an attempted character assassination. We have a literal assassination attempt. It's ridiculous. This is what Paul has. This is, this is deeply personal for him, right? But it's not just deeply personal for him. It's not just that some offense, some wrong has been done to him, right? There's more. For Paul, this is a conversation about the implications of the gospel, right? And that is very personal for him because he sacrificed for it. He's given himself for it. So all of that goes to say, of course, Galatians is intense because that's what's been brewing in the background. Of course, Paul is, is a bit raw in these moments. And Galatia was 
a really kind of challenging place to do ministry. Like a lot of other places in the Roman Empire, it had its own sort of unique set of complications that had to be dealt with. Okay, so we know, first of all, there's a group of Jewish people, not followers of Jesus. There's a large, what we call diaspora group, a group of people who have spread out from Judea. This happened a lot in the Roman Empire as a result of persecution. Uh, they moved to different parts, right? A lot of them had moved to Galatia, right? So there's this large group of Jewish people. And now here comes a very Jewish man proclaiming a very Jewish Messiah and even claiming that he himself is, is still Jewish. Paul doesn't say he's not Jewish any longer, right? He doesn't no longer identify with that. But this very Jewish man is very different in that he does not obey the law as strictly any longer. That has changed, right? And that's, that's a problem for them, right? Because think about this. Here is a group of people, the Jews, who have been waiting for centuries for God to liberate them from oppression, right? They've been waiting on God to finally deliver them. And now, Somebody's coming along, this interloper, a disruptor in the whole story, right? Because the way they see it, if they want God to save them, if they want the Messiah to come, they have to live rightly. They have to live righteous lives. They have to worship rightly. They have to adhere to the law strictly, right? This is the environment the Pharisees came from. If you ever wonder why the Pharisees were so serious about the law, why they were adding so much to the law, why they were such an oppressive group of people, it was because they knew Messiah doesn't come to a group of unrighteous and sinful and broken people. They wanted God to come. They wanted God to deliver them. They were waiting on it. And now there's this group of people who are putting all of that at risk. They feared God. They feared his punishment. They feared that this would prolong the coming of the Messiah and so it was very personal for them. They were longing for Israel to be restored. And here's a group of people that they saw standing in the way of that. Because they said, the law doesn't matter any longer. Jesus is the one who's really delivered us, right? Now, so that's the, the, the Jewish complication. On the other side of this thing, there are the pagan people there. The vast majority of them would have been pagans, right? Not Jewish people. The largest number of them were, were Gentile people, okay? And these people have their own kind of set of superstitions. They know that under Caesar, there has been peace and prosperity. They call it the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. You might have heard that in school, right? They know things have been good under Caesar. But here comes this group of people, disruptors. They refuse to worship Caesar. They refuse to worship any of the gods of Rome. And that seems a little familiar because they know that the Jews are that way. The difference is the Jewish people and Rome have an agreement. They've had it for centuries at this point. The Jews can continue to worship Yahweh, their God. They don't have to worship the Roman gods, but it's a very tense agreement that they have, okay? A very tense relationship that exists there. They don't really like Jewish people that much in Rome at the time. But this new group of Jewish people who are proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, they're claiming that a crucified Jewish man named Jesus is Lord. That's a title that they reserve for Caesar. And you're claiming that a crucified man, a man who died like a slave who is Jewish, is Lord. They fear in the same kind of way. 
they might suffer the wrath of the gods for such a claim, right? They fear they might bring the, the, the wrath of Caesar, right? It's, it's a huge problem. So there's this tension on both sides, right? They recognize that there's a very delicate balance that exists in the empire. And here comes this group of people who are about to disrupt it all. They're not okay with it. They want nothing to do with these troublemakers. Now here is the temptation for this new group of Jesus-following Jewish people. This new group of people in Galatia, some Gentiles who have now converted as well, right? The temptation is to try and look more Jewish. Now, why would they do that? Why would they feel like they should adhere more strictly to the law? Because in doing so, they keep Rome off their back. Because remember, the Romans have an agreement with the Jews, right? So if they just look like regular, old, normal Jewish people, they don't attract the attention of Rome. They have this privilege to worship as they want. On the other hand, these Gentile people who are so fearful of what's going on, if they recognize them as just being normal Jewish people, right? Excuse me, I mixed that up, didn't I? Totally mixed it up. But think about all of this. The Jewish people will now be off their backs as well. The Jewish people recognize if they adhere to the law, we're more comfortable with this new movement, right? If they're going to live this strict, stringent, law-abiding sort of life, we're okay with them saying what they want to. We're, we're more comfortable with that, right? So it becomes this appeal. How do we keep Rome off of our backs, and how do we keep the Jewish establishment off of our backs? It's a problem for them. And many of them, in an effort to do so, have just decided that they need to follow the law, as the Jewish people always have. And Paul says, in doing so, you mortgage your freedom in Christ. Right? You're compromising the very thing you believe about Jesus, right? All so that you can live more comfortably and peaceably within the empire. Is it starting to sound familiar? You're letting go of the thing that's most precious to you so you can live more comfortably and peaceably in this world. It's a problem. We know it well. This is what he's dealing with. This is what he's confronting. And to do so, Paul says is to turn away from the gospel. Now, think about this. However tense our present political or cultural moment is, it's not tense like that. It just isn't that tense. This is a whole other level of pressure and difficulty. But the thing we need to keep in mind is that there are so many similarities. The church has for centuries been dealing with this same stuff. There have always been these societal pressures where the church was always tempted to conform to societal norms, right? That's what we felt like we were supposed to do. We were always in this place, the church from the beginning, in this position where we felt like we needed to maintain that delicate balance that exists within our culture, right? We don't need to disrupt anything. We don't need to say anything that, that might attract attention. And for Paul, the gospel is inherently disruptive. It's supposed to disrupt. It's supposed to disturb the status quo. That's what it's supposed to do. If it doesn't, it might not actually be the gospel. That's what he's saying. It's meant to upset that delicate balance. And this whole conversation, it's perfect for Easter. It's perfect for Easter. We can forget that. 
Galatians, again, because it is so intense, it doesn't feel like a nice, peaceful, celebratory book to be in during the season of Easter, but think about it. The resurrection, as we acknowledge it, it's not just some beautiful surprise we get to celebrate year after year, right? The resurrection is is more than just that. A, A crucified and resurrected Messiah, Jesus, it disrupts It shakes things up, right? It uproots everything we thought we knew about God and the way he works with humanity and in this world. That's why Paul begins with Easter in Galatians. You read verse 1. Paul, an apostle sent by Jesus and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It's where Paul wants to begin the whole conversation. Everything else is predicated on that idea That Jesus was raised from the dead. And Galatians really is a letter written to kind of consider the question. What does it mean not just to believe at a mental level in the resurrection? Obviously, I think most people in the room, if not all of us, believe Jesus was resurrected. But what does it mean for us to be a people of the resurrected Messiah? What does that even look like? In real time, how does that begin to take shape in your life day to day, in the way you pursue your work, in the way you you walk with your family, in the relationships you have, whatever it might be? What is that supposed to look like? How are we becoming the people of the resurrected Messiah, Jesus? And Galatians is exploring all of this, how we are saved, and you're probably familiar with it for that reason, right? We're saved not by something we do, not by a work, not by a certain enough that we might have in mind. No, we're saved by this death and resurrection of Jesus, right? Galatians is making that clear, but just like Easter is not about us just getting dressed up and getting people into church so that we can get them into heaven, neither is the gospel. It's not just about getting people into heaven. It's it's more than that, right? Galatians is about something more for the gospel, showing us how how resurrection brings down the walls that exist within the church, within our society, between Jew and Gentile, between slave and free, between male and female, right? All of these dividing walls, all of these injustices, the resurrection speaks to, Paul wants them to see. Galatians is a letter that's about freedom in Christ. It's a letter about life in the Spirit. Paul wants you to see the gospel is about more than just you receiving the Spirit, more than just being saved, but what does it mean to walk in that Spirit? What does it mean to bear the fruit of that Spirit at work in you? Chapter 6, he he comes to a close with do good to all. What does it look like to do good to all, especially the household of faith? That's what it's, it's trying to force us to see. How are we becoming the people of the resurrected Christ? Not just the people that believe in the resurrection, but a people in whom that resurrection is taking shape and form, right? What does that even look like? Now, if you, if you read most of Paul's other letters, you know they begin a certain way. There's kind of a formula, right? Generally, it's a, a, a greeting, kind of an introduction. And then there's a, a lot of times a, a pretty long section with like thanksgiving. It's Paul thanking God for, for what he's been doing in this group of people, for the things that they may have done for him, whatever. Galatians skips it. You get five verses before Paul just explodes with these words. I am astonished 
that you are so quickly deserting the gospel, right? This is not kind of like the standard warm, gentle greeting. This is, this is Paul, the guy, writing in the comment section in all caps. Like, this is uncomfortable from the start. Paul is fuming, right? I'm astonished. He wastes no time in all of this because the problem he sees is that they have, have left what was the genuine gospel, the thing they originally believed, for something less. They've been bamboozled. They have less than what they originally did. They've been deceived. And so he's reminding them of the real substance of the gospel. If you look there at the beginning, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. And then he begins to give this, this short, very concise statement of the gospel, right? who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. That sounds pretty simplistic, and I think most of us would kind of shake our heads. Yes, I agree with that. That is the gospel, of course. And that is the message they originally believed, Paul is saying. But now they've departed from it. And in some sense, they've just started to kind of add to it make their own revisions, things that seem a little bit more sensible to them. And Paul says, evidently, there are some people who are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Evidently, Paul knows that there's a group of, of influential people. We're not talking any longer about the, the Jewish people who are not believers in Jesus. We're talking about those who have converted to following Jesus. And those people who are very influential, who have all kinds of, of voice in the life of this new, this new church that's forming there, they're beginning to twist Paul's word. They're beginning to teach something new, right? Mainly that Paul only told you part of the story. Paul only gave you some of the gospel. There's more. You need to know the more, right? The other thing that you need to know is that you, you still have to obey every letter of the law. That has not changed, right? Things like, you aren't really a follower of Jesus if you haven't been circumcised. That's a problem, right? So all these Gentile people who are converting, who are not circumcised, obviously, are being told, like, yeah, you, you believe in Jesus, but really... There's more to this process. You need to follow the law, right? And there's a group of people. Even Peter himself comes there at one point. And there's a disagreement between he and Paul because Peter is not willing in the presence of these Jewish believers to sit with these new Gentile believers because that has been the way things are. It's not really kosher. You don't sit and eat. You don't share a table with Gentiles. Yes, Paul told you some of it, but you need to remember these other things. The problem with all of this for Paul is that they've now begun to tie their salvation to something other than the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's an easy thing to do, right? It happens still to us, right? They are defining their lives, how they should live them, by something other than the work of the resurrected Messiah. And Paul says, just so you know, that's not actually gospel. That's something else. You've bought into something else entirely. Something that has no real substance, no real value. One of the, my, my favorite things I read this week was from N.T. Wright, a theologian. And he says it so well. 
He says this thing that they're teaching. He says, this isn't an announcement that the new age has begun. It is simply a message about how to survive in the old age. This isn't an announcement that the new age has begun in Jesus. It's simply a message about how to survive in the old age, right? Effectively, how can I appear different and yet remain the same? This message they teach is, yes, Jesus died and was resurrected. You should believe that. You should give yourself to that. But no, it doesn't really change everything. It doesn't really change anything for that matter. The old way still applies. You still have to adhere to these things, right? In essence, what Paul has told them, that Jesus has, has rescued them from the present evil age and begun a new age, a new creation, it's not completely true. So you have a group of people in the church who are just kind of like mixing Jesus in to their already well-established way of, of doing life. They just kind of mix Jesus conveniently into what they've already been doing, right? Their hope is still attached to the same things. Ultimately, their hope is attached to whether or not they can do it right, whether or not they can do enough. Their hope is attached to how well they're able to adhere to the law. How faithful can they be, right? They're living this way in the hope that God will eventually fulfill what he's promised. And Paul is saying, God has already fulfilled what he promised to you in Jesus. How could you depart from that? How could you expect that you needed to do more to make that happen? And it's that, that same kind of like quasi-gospel semi-gospel sort of revision that we see, that we know, it's, it's, it's a lot closer to our culture than we think, right? Obviously, nobody in the, rooms is, is, in the room is, is, is reading Galatians and thinking, should I be circumcised? Like, it's just not a question we're, we're wrestling with in our, our society. Unless you just had a baby boy, it's not on your radar screen, right? It's completely different, right? You're not asking that question. And yet, we are still wrestling with the same things. We are still wrestling with what the implications of the gospel are, what the implications of the resurrection are in our lives, right? And we still see people revising it. We still see people bastardizing the gospel for profit. We still see people making additions to it over and over again, adding more and more to it. We know the mindset. Sometimes we even slip into it ourselves. Right? Yes, Jesus defeated death. It doesn't necessarily change anything. Right? My life kind of remains the same. The old way still applies. All these old patterns, all these old ways I used to look at the world, that same perspective, it still applies. Right? And, and for so many people in the church, though they show up on Easter and believe it, and show up throughout the year and, and, and sing these songs about the hope of, of death and resurrection, right? Ultimately, so often our hope is still tied, not to those things, but to our success. Our hope is still tied to our work. Our hope is still tied to our, our family, our prosperity, how well we do, right? That's where my hope is. My hope for the future, it's in the security of my retirement. My hope for the future is in how well I do for myself. Now, my hope for heaven, that's, that's Jesus, obviously. When I need heaven, then obviously Jesus will help me. 
It's this sort of distant reality for so many people. And we just kind of sprinkle Jesus into our already well-established plans for life. Our well-established plans for life don't change any whatsoever, despite this thing that we claim, which is that Jesus was dead, truly dead, and now he's alive. Yet nothing, nothing really is changing. And, and frankly, Jesus is a great topping, right? He's like the icing on top of your life's cake. He fits in so nicely to the American dream. You can throw his name on whatever it is you think you're supposed to be doing with your life. Paul sees it. We see it. And there are so many people, so many times, instead of living in the reality of the resurrection, we're just surviving in the same old way. It's intense. It's why Paul writes this way. We're losing something far better, right? For Paul, there's this one thing that separates Jesus from every other crazy who claimed to be Messiah. Obviously, when those people died, their following ceased to exist. They're never heard from again, right? Jonathan alluded to this last week. Yet still, we are proclaiming Jesus because Christ is risen. And for Paul, it was the resurrection that kind of like split history in two, okay? You have the, the present evil age, the world as we have known it, and the age to come, right? That's what his emphasis is. Jesus rescued us from the present evil age, and he began a new creation. He began a new age altogether. But this group of Christians are kind of straddling a fence between the two. They have one foot in the present evil age, and they've kind of begun to dip their toes into the water of the age to come. They're straddling this fence. They don't know what else to do. They're trying to manage that tension, remember, in their lives, in the empire, in the church. And we're prone to the same tendency. Like, the church is still wrestling with this. What does it look like for us to live in this overlap of ages, in the in-between, right, of the fulfillment of, of these promises, right? So often we tend to live with one foot in the grave and one foot in this like resurrection life reality that Jesus has offered to us. We're still living according to the old way. The old way still applies. Like I, I, I couldn't help but laugh a little bit this week. It's like we're, we're still putting our eggs in that basket. It's ridiculous. And Paul is saying, your basket is rapidly deteriorating. Stop putting eggs in that basket. Stop giving yourself to the old way. It's foolishness. But we stick to what we know. We stick to what is comfortable. We're afraid to step fully into the life of resurrection because it feels just a little uneasy to believe in that way, to follow Jesus in that way, to, to give ourselves in that kind of discipline and faithfulness. Because for so many of us, sometimes, Jesus has just kind of presented us with a different way of being religious. We're not comfortable with all these other ways of being religious, but Jesus makes us feel a bit more comfortable about it. And so we follow him just like we'd follow any other religious figure you've heard of, right? We give ourselves to him the same way. We approach life the same. We approach him the same. Again, he's just kind of sprinkled on. But Paul is saying to follow Jesus truly, it means I live with both feet in this new thing, in this new era, age of new creation, right? I refuse to straddle a fence. I give myself completely to it. 
The kingdom of God, he's saying, it's not something I will get to experience when I die. It's not just a thing some, somewhere distant off in the future. Heaven is not just some place I will go when I die, right? It, it's more than just that. It's not just that Jesus saved me and so eventually one day I'll have heaven, right? Heaven is not just a place that I will eventually go to. The way the New Testament describes it, heaven is a place that's coming here. It has already begun to come here, right? The kingdom of heaven is slowly swallowing up the world as we know it, making everything new. That's what we believe about it. Everything is different, and Jesus starts it all when he's raised. So Paul is asking these people, why would you continue to live in the same way that you have? Why would you continue to live stuck in a temporary reality when the eternal reality of heaven has begun in Jesus? Why would we continue to approach life in the same way? Jesus has disrupted this temporary reality with news of a better, lasting age to come. Why would I give myself to it? I was thinking about it. You guys ever have that conversation uh, with somebody? Maybe it's over email. Maybe it's on the phone. They need some document from you. I'm always astonished at this. Maybe they need like a copy of your driver's license or your birth certificate or something. And they ask you that faded question. In 2022, they say, uh, do you have a fax machine? Yes, of course I have a fax machine in my 1990s home office with my landline telephone. I absolutely have access to a fax machine. I'll send it right over. No, I don't have a fax machine. There are newer, just as secure ways of sending information. Why are we still living in that age? It makes no sense. Paul is saying, I'm astonished that you would choose to live in that age when there's something better, right? But that that analogy falls apart, obviously. Jesus is not just the newest technological innovation, a newer, better religious innovation. He's more than that, right? But, But hear it. Paul is saying it's deteriorating. It's falling apart. And Paul says... This better lasting age to come. That's the one you should give yourself to. That gospel, that's what you should give yourself to and not something less. Don't settle. Like the church cannot settle for a gospel that says, yes, Jesus died and was resurrected to save me as long as I do better, as long as I do more, as long as I do enough, as long as I do less of this other thing. Whatever it might be, fill in the blank. The as long as gospel is not real, Paul is saying. Give yourself to the gospel instead, he says. It says, God demonstrates his love to us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Stop thinking you need to to do more, do better. That's, That's not gospel. That's something else, right? But at the same time, he's saying, don't settle for a gospel that tells you Jesus died so that one day you can experience heaven instead of suffering hell. Don't don't buy into that idea, right? It's reductionistic. It's removing so much of the substance from it. Give yourself to the gospel of Jesus and to the truth that heaven has already entered into this world. It happened in Bethlehem. Heaven has already come. We're already seeing it, right? Heaven began to dismantle this world as we know it when Jesus was dead but then was alive again. It all shifts. Heaven began to dismantle this world as we know it. And the world is crumbling 
in some sense, under the weight of heaven. Heaven and earth are coming together. Earth is becoming what God intended for it to be. His creation is being remade, right? It's not just about me being saved. It's not just about me feeling better. God is doing something far bigger, right? Paul is saying, give yourself to Jesus' gospel. Give yourself to his resurrection as something more than just like a a cool trick he did 2,000 years ago. Give yourself to the resurrection as more than something he will eventually do when you die. Give yourself to the resurrection as something more than, than, uh, that will eventually make things better. No, that, that's not it. The resurrection has already begun. It's already happening. It has already begun in Jesus. It is still happening in us by his spirit, and he will be faithful to complete it, Paul is saying. That's the gospel. It is far bigger than you you need to do more. It is far bigger than this as long as addition that you're making to it. It's far bigger than than heaven is this distant place somewhere in the future that you don't understand. This geographical location that you'll be transported to one day. No, it's already here. But have we actually given ourselves to it? Or are we just kind of like sprinkling it into our already established plans? It's like a hard question. Galatians really does confront us. It is intense. What does it look like for you to become one of these, these followers of Jesus, a people of the, the resurrected Messiah. Not just somebody who believes in this vague sense, but who's allowing that resurrection to take shape and form. What does it look like, as Eugene Peterson says, to, to practice resurrection? Not as some theological concept you believe, but as a part of who you are. How is it bearing fruit in you? How are you being made new day after day? How are we as the church being made new day after day? So I want to invite the the band. The band's going to come and and play, and we're going to move toward the table. And I want to invite you guys into that that sort of space of, of reflection. I know, I know, again, this stuff sounds big. It sounds intense. And again, it is. I understand that. But I feel like it's the perfect season. In a season of intense celebration, it's good for us to consider, what does it mean? What are we really celebrating? And have we given ourselves to it completely? So I invite you into that. Make that your prayers as you come to the table this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for for this time around your word. God, help us to understand. Uh, We confess Sometimes all of this is lost on us. Sometimes we don't realize when we've begun to kind of mortgage your gospel for something less. Realize that you know, what we call belief is really just some sort of like empty mental acknowledgement, Lord. We want to truly have faith. We want to truly give ourselves to this resurrection life. Show us what that looks like. Give us wisdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.